stay connected. Sign up for our newsletter. Go beyond your favorite Voice America shows. Visit iradioblog.com. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, what is going on right now? Uh, One of the things that we've become obsessed in this country with trials, and there certainly seem to be enough of them at any one moment to satisfy our appetite. No sooner had Jody Arias uh, been over, or it's not even quite over, but uh, for the time being, a lull, um, then we have the George Zimmerman trial. And there's Whitey Bulger and, and Bulger in, in the, on the East Coast, and there's, um, I mean, <laughs> there are more than, uh, more than we can pay attention to at one time. And, of course, this all started uh, with with OJ's trial being the trial of the century, last century, and now we have already we already have many contenders for the trial of this century. So uh, I'm sure there are going to be many more before the century is over. Um, of course, as a psychiatric expert witness, uh, this is something that I'm fascinated by and involved in day to day myself. Um, and my guest today, so of course I'm, I'm kind of getting around to the fact that we are going to be talking about today George Zimmerman, guilty or not. Now we're right in the middle of the George Zimmerman trial. It's uh, hard to say how, what the outcome is going to be because um, it has gotten off to a really rocky start. There are some days when it seemed as though um, he was going to win, uh, he was going to be acquitted, and then there are some days that did not look very good for him. Um, and, of course, then there's the whole issue of should he be tried at all if it, not, if it were not for all the racial protests that went on once the police originally uh, didn't charge him, let him go free, and then the, a, a special prosecutor was hired, and then all of a sudden they uh, arrested him and charged him with second-degree murder. Um, so, you know, should this tri- trial be happening at all. Well, today's guest is going to uh, 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 chime in. I was going to say put his two cents in, but I think it'll be worth <laughs> a, lot, a lot more than two cents. Uh, it is Lance LaRusso. He is a leading attorney. He is the author of the book When Cops Kill, and he is also, interestingly enough, a former police officer who uh, and also someone who has worked with neighborhood watches. So you, Lance, are particularly qualified to um, talk about uh, to talk about this trial, to evaluate this trial. So welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. Um, now, of course, I gather from what I've read about you and from and, and your book, When Cops Kill, 
um, that you are on the side of, or well, how should I put it, that you don't think that uh, George Zimmerman should be found guilty. Is that fair? Well, I think the question is, I don't know that he's going to based on the evidence that we've heard so far. Right. But also you would think that he shouldn't be. Well, I would think that he sounds like he may have a valid um, self-defense claim, and I think that's what I'm waiting to hear to see what the prosecution is going to put up to defeat that claim. Uh huh. Well, just so you know, and all my your listeners know, I I totally agree with that. Now I know when this case first started, and actually the event happened, the uh, the altercation altercation between George Zimmerman and Trayvon Martin happened on February 26, 2012. So it was over a year ago. And um, I, I've been, you know, watching this whole thing unfold with interest. And um, one of the things that um, that I thought was holds the key to a lot of this, and, and I thought, well, let me just say, and I, th- I am also on the side of um, I don't think that there is enough evidence to uh, convict George Zimmerman of second degree murder or of any murder charges. And uh, I do think that it was self defense. And um, and as I was saying at the beginning, I don't know that, that it's really fair that he is in this predicament to begin with. And had there not been, um, had it not become an issue of race, um, I don't think that he would be on trial. I mean, for example, he identifies, George Zimmerman identifies himself as Hispanic. Although, interestingly, he is born of a Peruvian mother um, who, let me just see here, she has black, uh, or in her in her background, she's she was um, born in Peru. She um, has some black an- ancestry through her Afro-Peruvian maternal grandfather, and um, uh, George Zimmerman's father is uh, German, a uh, white American of German descent, and he is he he is a retired Virginia magistrate, which. Um, you know, was is really interesting. So, he, in any case, he identifies himself as sort of multiracial Hispanic. Had the the person that he shot been multiracial Hispanic or just Hispanic, I'm not sure that we'd be having this trial. What do you think? Well, I think that one of the issues that we can't get away from, and I deal with this with officers that I represent, race is just something that's an external characteristic of someone many times, and you can't get away from it. I've represented law enforcement officers who were white, who were forced to use deadly force against someone who was African-American. And the question is always going to be raised if there is a question about whether the person was motivated in using deadly force by some sort of improper um, means, whether it's in their heart uh, to seek the person out or whether they judged the actions of the person differently. Uh huh. And and of course, with second degree murder in Florida, that's part of the issue. Um, in order to be convicted of of uh, second degree murder, you have to have um, had ill will um, or uh, or spite or hatred. Well, it's, Carol, you hit the nail on the head because that is really the issue. You can argue and and question, and I think first off. People will question someone's motives when they think that there's a concern. And let's face it, when you use deadly force and someone loses their life, you're taking away their life and their liberty. And we take that very seriously in our society, and and we should. But you're absolutely right about the count of second-degree murder. It is evincing a 
depraved mind regardless of human life without premeditation. So essentially what's going to have to happen with that charge is the jury is going to have to hear some evidence that he did act with ill will towards Trayvon Martin. And from what we've heard so far, and keep in mind this is the prosecution's chance, uh, what we've heard so far, that evidence is not there. Mm-hmm. Yes, you know, have you... Um... Have you listened to the 911 call? I have. I've listened to the 911 call several times, and that was one of the issues that came up. And I know that it was interesting to finally see some of this testimony out. The evidence has been released in dribs and drabs. There have been some things that have been posted, the um, 911 calls. We also heard uh, or saw the um, scene walkthrough, and that's what we call it uh, when homicide detectives actually walk somebody through a scene to understand why, and I'll, I'll tell you why that's important in a second. The 911 call, the dispatcher never tells him not to get out of his car, never tells him not to follow Trayvon Martin, and that 911 call needs to be put in context for a couple of reasons. First and foremost, working with neighborhood watches, the whole thing that they do is observe and report. The law enforcement officers, absent some really extreme circumstance, do not have the authority to tell someone you can't follow someone or you can't get out of your house and see where someone's going or stay in your car and wait for the police. And and yet they did that. Well, if you listen to the 911 call, they really don't order him not to do it. They just say you don't need to do that. Uh-huh. Um, I guess we'd have to get the dispatcher to find out exactly what they meant did they mean you don't need to do that because the police are on their way and they have a general idea of where you are, or that's not a good idea? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think the one thing that's been um, overlooked is the 911 call itself. The area in looking at the scene walkthrough, which I would recommend to your listeners, is very, very enlightening, and it's, it's very important for a self-defense uh, issue coming up in a court. George Zimmerman got on the phone, stayed on the phone, remained on the phone, and was trying to give an exact location where he was going. I think one of the difficult things the prosecutors are going to have to deal with was George Zimmerman was doing everything he could, it appears, to get the police to his location. I have never seen anyone with a criminal intent do everything they could to get (laughs) the police to their location prior to committing a criminal act. Well, that's right. Um, If he had, you know, if it was racially biased or or some other reason he just wanted to shoot Trayvon, um, that's right. He wouldn't have been on the phone to 911. I had taken some notes when the the 911 uh, tape first came out um, that, for example, uh, Zimmerman sounded much calmer and more rational than the public protests at the time made him out to be. Uh, He also seemed truly frightened of Trayvon. He mentioned several times that the boy seems to be on drugs or that there is something wrong with him and that Trayvon is staring at him. And then you hear Zimmerman's breath get more rapid as the 911 call goes on, which um, I interpreted as a psychiatrist, that uh, he was he was becoming more frightened of Trayvon and the situation. And then, um, key, when the 911 operator asked Zimmerman for Trayvon's ethnicity, Zimmerman wasn't even sure at first that he was African-American. So it wasn't um, that he was targeting African-Americans. It was only later when he was able to get a better look at him that he said that he was black. And it's interesting, you're absolutely correct, and one of the other things that I noted from the 911 call is his initial call was that Trayvon Martin was walking on the grass and not on the sidewalk 
of a house that had been uh, burglarized or a nearby house. It looks like when you look at the video, these may have been townhomes that were connected, so we don't know if he was talking about the one that he was in front of at the time or there was a, another one nearby. But he's describing behavior that's suspicious, and he states that he believes that he may have had something in his hand or his hand in his waistband. Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, all these things that indicate that he was scared. And then, um, even though, you know, yes, there is this questionable issue of whether the 911 operator was really telling him not to go after Trayvon, um, the 911 operator didn't really give Zimmerman any reassurance that the police were going to be there anytime soon. Um, it, they said the cops will call him when they get to that neighborhood. So it implied that... Um, that it, it was going to be a, they were coming from far away and they weren't exactly rushing to get there. Yes, as a matter of fact, on the tape, they said he says that he essentially doesn't know where he is. George Zimmerman says uh, he was trying. He says that he was trying to get out to find an address, and he right. makes a comment essentially that he's gone. He doesn't know where he went, and the dispatcher says, "Do you want to wait around since he's gone?" And he said, "Yes." Uh huh. So I think that indicates that he was trying to meet with the police to give them some yes. information. Yes, absolutely. Well, we need to take a break. Um, my guest is Lance LaRusso. He is a leading attorney and the author of When Cops Kill. Uh, you're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll be back right back with more analysis of the George Zimmerman trial. And uh, stay tuned. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carroll is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carroll wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarroll.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarroll.com Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. My guest today is Lance LaRusso. We're talking about the George Zimmerman trial uh, on second degree on trial for second degree murder of Trayvon Martin. Guilty or not. My guest is Lance LaRusso. He's the author of When Cops Kill. What's, what's so interesting is that not only are you a leading attorney, but the fact you're coming to this as being a former police officer and having worked with neighborhood watches, which of course gives you special expertise in analyzing George Zimmerman and, and this whole case. Um, this case is very emotional. It's gotten, God, it's, it's really, uh, uh, you know, gotten people to watch for, 
mainly because of the racial tension issues and so on. And even, I think one of the telling signs of how this has gotten a little emotionally out of control is that, um, as I'm sure you and many of my listeners will remember, even President Obama took this way too personally. Remember when he said if he had a son, he would look like Trayvon? Yeah, I do remember that comment. I remember him saying that, and I remember at the time I was uh, disappointed that he chose to comment on the case, especially mm-hmm. as it was pending. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> you know, and the jury, the jury is not sequestered at this, are they? Oh no, I think they are. I think they've mentioned that they were sequestered. I've heard that a couple of times. And were they? Are they? Yeah, I think they are, um, but I, I think that, and we can check that, but I believe they've mentioned that they're sequestered, and they probably will be sequestered um, again over the weekend. But, you know, it's it's difficult. The jurors can do their best, and the lawyers can do their best to try to find objective people to sit on the jury, or at least people, if they do have any um, biases or any preconceived notions, is really what you're asking about, that they're willing to set them aside. But the intense media pressure that has occurred in this case, really, I'm glad they were able to strike a jury. I was concerned as an attorney that they were going to have a difficult time getting a trial by people who were willing to listen to the evidence. Yes, and of course, this comment that I just mentioned about by President Obama was way before the jury was chosen, no less sequestered. So it's likely that <laughs> unless they were living under a rock, it's likely that they heard this. Well, as a matter of course, when you have a, a shooting that happens, especially when a civilian uses deadly force, it does get a lot of uh, airplay, and the media is necessarily trying to catch up with the news cycle and provide information. And there were several inaccuracies that were portrayed at the beginning of this case. Some of that is expected. Um, the short news cycle trying to get information out is expected. But as the case went on, there was a lot of criticism of the coverage that it was causing concerns and misrepresenting some of the information that was out there. Yes, I mean, one of the things uh, was how they portrayed George Zimmerman as not having any injuries originally. I remember that. That's extremely important in any type of an encounter, especially when you're talking about a self-defense issue that's going to be raised at trial. There's two things that are extremely important with regard to the individuals. One is whether or not there were injuries, and two is the relative size and strength of the individuals. Mm-hmm. If you have somebody who is unarmed and you have a five foot, 100 pound individual who is trying to defend themselves, it's going to be very difficult. And the pictures that showed Trayvon Martin as a 12 year old were very misleading. Yes, yes, yes. Which brings. <laughs> Which brings me to um, the uh, the witness. Um, we could talk about her forever, Rachel Jeantel. You know, after all those pictures of Trayvon Martin, you know, when he was younger and even when he was more or less his age, um, you did not expect. I mean, the, the implication was, I mean, she was portrayed or described as a friend. He was talking to this friend, Rachel, uh, on the phone as right before or as he confronted uh, Zimmerman, or Zimmerman confronted him. They, they confronted each other. Um, and you did not, I certainly did not expect, and I don't think most people expected, Rachel to look, uh, now, you know, I just say things the way I see them, so um, to, I'm not known for my tact. Um, but Rachel <laughs> did not look like, does not look like, who we anyone expected her to look like. I was actually surprised by a couple of things in her testimony, and one, it appeared to me that she was very 
cavalier about her testimony. Uh, yes. It was it was very very strange to me um, watching her body language and watching the way she was. Um, testifying. At first, I mean, witnesses can seem like that when they're extremely nervous. I mean, you've certainly seen people that are so nervous they almost shut down when you're asking them questions. But as the time went on, it really was an it was unexplainable as to why she was answering the questions the way she was answering them. Um, The one question that I have, and it probably probably wasn't appropriate to be asked in the trial, obviously we're only getting snippets of it, but why she didn't call 911 mm. if Trayvon Martin believed he was being followed or why she didn't tell him, get off the phone and call the police. Mm. Well, she does not. I mean, come on. She's not the brightest bulb in the in the shed. Um, she couldn't even read cursive writing. And um, and she does have this attitude. I mean, I, mean, I, I don't know. You know, before, it just, it just seemed like he would have been more... In, in so many respects, the way she looks, the way she was intellectually, and so on, um, it just it, it's just did not fit the picture of who, up until now, it was the big reveal of who she was, and it just didn't seem like who uh, he would have been on the phone with. And then, of course, you know, there's the whole thing with the jury thinking birds of a feather flock together, and so if she was his friend, like his good friend, who he was on the phone with, uh, she was an and she was an unlikable bird. That was not good um, for the prosecution. And then, um, uh, you know, it, it just it just seemed. And then, of course, they, the uh, defense found so many self contradictions, things that she didn't say. And and what was up with that? The letter that she couldn't read that she was supposed to have written. What was up with that? I don't know, but I, I think the disconnect really has to do with expectations. And when expectations don't match reality, people start scratching their heads and asking questions. I think the prosecution had to call her. If they had not called the person who was on the phone with Trayvon Martin when all this was happening and before the confrontation, the jury would have said, why didn't you call her? But I think the other issue when we're um, looking at, at her as a witness, it was built up as a person who would be a star witness. And they don't match when you hear what the guts of what she has to say. A lot of people have come under fire for criticizing her as a witness. And right. taking all of, taking everything aside, what you have to look at being a poor witness in her is the fact that she didn't have information that really helped. What she said mm-hmm. was that, in essence, was that he believed he was being followed. Okay, well... That's only one part of the equation. The defense did a, did a very good job, and obviously one of their questions is, we understand all that. Well, um, I believe he was following me for an improper reason. I understand all that. Ma'am, can you tell us who struck the first blow? Mm. And if the answer is no, especially under the Florida Stand Your Ground rule, that really is the crux of it. And this is why the prosecution obviously has the burden of proof. But the real issue that's lacking here is, and we haven't seen it yet, is who struck the first blow and whether or not any use of force was justified. Well, yes. And uh, you would have thought that the prosecution, I'm sure you must have been shocked about this as a lawyer, um, that why they had all this time. I mean, it was over a year ago. They knew she was, uh, let's say, a year ago. Um, why didn't they prepare her better for trial? Well, they may have. 
Um, it also has to do with uh, some of the fact that these are not some of them are reluctant witnesses. Uh, Mr. Good, who is one of the neighbors, uh, a lot of these witnesses really did not have, again, the expectations. They didn't have to say what people expected them to say. Mr. Good uh, provided testimony. I think he was being honest. I think everybody has testified that this was a very dark night, and it was difficult. And if you listen to Mr. Good, he starts talking about um, descriptive terms, and when he says the man with the orange jacket was on the bottom and the other person was on top swinging down at him, that's extremely important. Mm-hmm. And when we're looking at um, other issues so far as filling in the blanks, when you have a witness that steps up and really doesn't fill in those blanks, a jury just starts shaking their heads. But watch Mr. Good's body language. I don't think he wanted to be there. Mm-hmm. Well, and and just to clarify, so what he said was that Trayvon was on top. Yes, he yeah. says that Trayvon was on top, and I think he said something like, I could tell that the person on the bottom had lighter skin color, and then he also said that um, he could see the, the person on top's hands um, going up and down, and the best the prosecution would, could come back with was, well, you didn't see what his fists were striking. And, huh. you know, you mentioned something earlier about, the suspicion level, and a great deal of that has been challenged as to why George Zimmerman thought Trayvon Martin was suspicious. As a necessary part of that word, that is going to be a subjective and people can, a subjective belief, and people will disagree. Certainly, neighborhood watch programs try to educate people as to what is suspicious and what is not, but you encourage people to call the police if. In their minds, they believe someone is suspicious. Mm-hmm. And there had been robberies in that neighborhood, recent robberies before. So he had, you know, he was particularly, um, you know, being careful in, in terms of what he was looking at or uh, considering whether something was suspicious or not. Um, and he says what it is. I mean, he, he specifically says and he tells the detectives, he articulates, which in the law is generally what we look at, it's called articulable suspicion. But what he says is he's standing and he's walking slowly in the rain. He's not walking on a path that people normally walk on. Mm-hmm. Now, 20 people in a room and, and 18 of them may say, well, that wouldn't arouse my suspicions. But the whole essence of neighborhood watches, if something does arouse your suspicions, don't wait, call the police. Right, right, absolutely. And, you know, one of the key things that I, I think are, are something that I think is so key is that apparently when the police told Zimmerman that um, they had a video of the encounter, now that they were lying, they were just using that as a, as a way to get him to, you know, talk, um, he was happy, he was glad there was a, a video. And um, if someone had done something improper, you know, had just shot Trayvon because he wanted to, he wouldn't be very happy that there was a video. Yeah, and I think that that goes uh, a couple of different ways. I think you're absolutely right. Most people would be concerned there was a video if they were trying to hide something. Right. Second, well, we'll, he was trying we'll to talk... call people to him. That what? He was trying to call people to him. He was yelling for yes. help, so he yes. wanted people to see. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, we need to co- we'll need to take another break here. Uh, leaving everything on a cliff. <laughs> Anger. Um, my guest is Lance LaRusso. We're talking about the Zimmerman trial, of course. He's the author of When Cops Kill. We'll be right back. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. 
Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Tune into Around the World in a Glass, presented by Sportsman's. We're a show all about wine, spirits, and other beverages. Your host, Kimber Stonehouse, is a professional expert and wine enthusiast. Each week, we'll focus on a different region of the world, discuss wines and other beverages, talk about some of the top restaurants in the region, and what to pair with which wine. Just listening could make you almost an expert. Around the World in a Glass is heard live every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, here with Lance LaRusso. We're talking about the George Zimmerman trial, guilty or not dissecting various highlights that have uh, intrigued us both. Um, one of the things that, um, not to pat myself on the back, but I, I love it when um, I get things right in these cases in my real life as an expert, which hopefully is more times than, than not, but also in these trials in the news. Um, from the very beginning, I predicted um, that a toxicology screen of Trayvon would find evidence of alcohol or drugs in his system. And, of course, we then later found out that, indeed, there was marijuana in his system. And, I mean, it wasn't rocket science. I figured that out because he was suspended from school because of marijuana. And uh, George Zimmerman described him as possibly being on drugs in the 911 call. And it would explain uh, how and why Trayvon attacked Zimmerman. In other words, it would explain um, maybe if he hadn't been high on marijuana, uh, he would have thought to call 911 himself, or he would have run in the other direction, or done something that was more logical than get into an actual confrontation with Zimmerman. It, it is, and it's an interesting point that really hasn't been addressed. And I think the court probably made a correct legal decision uh, in keeping it out. And I would defer to the judge because of what they heard, because that really has not been an element of the self-defense case that Zimmerman is making out. Well, it should be. And I was very concerned, and still am concerned, about the impartiality of the judge. I mean, she seems that when she ruled about that before the trial started, um, in chief, that they couldn't mention 
um, the marijuana in his tox screen. I thought that that was really unfair. I mean, it goes to the um, character of Trayvon Martin, who had been suspended from school. He was suspended at the time of the de- of his death. He had been suspended three times that year, once for tardiness, once for um, graffiti. He wrote uh, uh, WTF on a, on a school door. And then when his bag was searched, um, they found several pieces of women's jewelry in his backpack. And, of course, that has never been... It's never been, uh, no one has come forward to explain that. And they also found burglary tools. Um, and then this last suspension, the third suspension, involved finding a marijuana pipe and an empty bag containing marijuana residue uh, in his possession. And so, you know, and then there were, there were other things. There, was, there were pictures of, um, of a gun. Remember that? Um, I do remember the picture of him holding a handgun, yeah. Yes, that was on his, what, was that Instagram or... Facebook or something. It was on it his was, phone. Yeah, it was one of the two. I think it might have been on his phone because those pictures are up now, even though they weren't allowed in court. There's two pictures of him holding a handgun and a couple of pictures of him. It looks like smoking marijuana. You know, I think when you bring up the uh, the interesting point, Carol, about whether or not the marijuana should be admissible, we are rapidly changing as a country how we look at marijuana use, mm-hmm. and I think you can't overlook that in the um, court's analysis. We have several states now that have legalized the use of marijuana, and the concern about um, someone being on drugs, if you will, or having something in their system, I think to an extent lessens, and the court is trying to have a fair trial. That's the court's goal, is to have a fair trial that's balanced and not leaning one way or the other and letting the evidence um, tell the story to the jury and let the jury make up their minds. When you have so many states that are legalizing marijuana, just the presence of marijuana in someone's system begins to have less of a persuasive nature in a legal context. Well, yes, but at the same time, if they would have had, and I don't know if they're planning on having a psychiatric expert witness, but had they had one, had I been called for the defense, um, I certainly would have explained in detail how marijuana affects people's perceptions and affects people's actions and impulsivity and all of that. You can't take that away even if states are legalizing it. I agree with you. I've arrested people for uh, DUI of marijuana, and as much as people say it doesn't affect you, it's, it clearly affects your ability to react and your perceptions. So, I mean, I know that she said in her ruling that if it, like if there's a reason for it to come out or something, you know, a, a compelling, the defense can make a compelling argument for why it should come out, that maybe later on she'll let it in. But I don't know if that's going to happen. Well, she left it open, and that's not atypical. A lot of times when courts are faced with information like this, they want to see how the evidence develops and then see essentially if the, in the vernacular of, of lawyers, if somebody opens the door, and you've certainly seen that if you've observed a lot of trials, where evidence that a judge says we're not getting into that, somebody will ask a question right. that now makes it relevant for the other side to bring it up. That could change very quickly. Right, right. Um. Well, let's talk about the lawyers, since we sort of... The news today, I mean, we have Don West, one attorney, Don West, attorney for the defense, um, and who started off with a knock-knock joke. I mean, I don't know who told him that that was clever and funny before he did it, but um, they, should, they should be shot. That would not have been my first choice. <laughs> 
I mean, yes, you know, it's true. If you hadn't, if you haven't heard of um, George Zimmerman, then you're more or Trayvon Martin, then you would be more likely to be on the jury. But you know, uh, starting off a murder trial with a joke, uh, even if it's the best joke in the world, doesn't seem to be a clever idea. What do you think about him? Uh, uh, you know, it, it, the cross examination that these defense attorneys have done is has been excellent. Uh, mm -hmm. It has been a textbook, and they have really brought out a lot of things. And probably what you what a lot of people would not see from that. For every question they're asking, they probably have four or five or even ten other questions they could ask, but they really have to confine it to things that will be compelling to the jury. Mm. So they're doing a good job in that regard, but absolutely. And I think that if I can summarize why people were so upset by mm. the knock-knock joke, yes. irrespective of whether or not George Zimmerman lawfully used force when he shot uh, Trayvon Martin, this is a serious case. Someone lost their life, and I don't. I imagine the jury probably did not appreciate it. Right, right. That it shows a little disrespect for how serious all of this is. Yeah, and a disrespect uh, in a way that you don't want to bring to your attention as an attorney. You want the the jury to understand that you're taking this seriously. If you know these people are being sequestered from their families for a couple of weeks at least, and that in and of itself is something to take very seriously. Right. And what, yes, I wanted to ask you about that. What do you think about the fact that the jury is women? It's interesting. I've had people ask me about that before, and I think it probably depends on who you've asked. Uh, I think the prosecution might say it's great because they might have be more inclined to uh, identify with uh, the loss of a child and the fact that um, the more of a a nurturing belief that you may find from an all-female jury. I don't know that that's the case. I think that George Zimmerman has also, I don't know if it's going to come out, the question is whether or not he's going to testify, but George Zimmerman also said that one of the reasons he got involved in the Neighborhood Watch was to do things like protecting his wife and things. So that can cut both ways. I think whoever the jury is, they were selected from a large group. And in my experience, juries work hard to listen to the evidence, to pay attention, and to try to come to a legal result. Well, um... You know, of course, you're supposed to have a jury of your peers, and couldn't one, would that be an appealable issue that um, <laughs> there was no man on the jury? I don't believe so. I don't think that would get anywhere. Uh, the jury panel that they chose from to get the six jurors and alternates that they have um, was a pretty big panel, and both lawyers had an opportunity to make strikes, as we call it, and, and remove somebody from the jury panel. And I think they worked very hard at getting a jury that would be uh, willing to listen to the evidence. I don't think the fact that there are no men on the jury would really be a basis for an appeal. Mm -hmm. Well, what about, uh, I don't know if you heard, but today um, the latest thing in regard to Don West is that his daughter put up a picture on Instagram, did you hear about that? I did. You know, that's the uh, the fishbowl nature of our society. But I think that's actually having a bigger effect on this case than people realize for another reason. I just wrote an article on this for law enforcement officers. And we live in a YouTube society. And uh, please don't think I coined that term. If you use it, that, that term, please don't attribute it to me. But, you know, I could tell someone, hey, XYZ happened uh, at a grocery store I was at. And people are going to be picking up the... Um, computer and trying to see if they can find it on YouTube. There's no video. There's no objective third-party witness. And in this case, a lot of people are upset 
that George Zimmerman's word is going to carry a lot of weight. But first of all, there was a time uh, back years and years ago, like 10, where we didn't have the ever-present video surveillance. And juries uh, have been listening to people's individual words and making credibility judgments for a couple of hundred years in the United States. Right. Well, okay, so she, the daughter of Don West put up a picture of um, she and her father uh, having ice cream and celebrating. And it was, um, I forgot the exact words, but it, the gist of it was she was celebrating what a great job her father had done in court that day, which is kind of sweet, but I guess, I guess he never explained to her that you don't do this kind of thing during the trial. Yeah, it also tells you that people forget it's not just your Twitter account or your Facebook page that people are watching. They're watching your family members. They're watching your friends to see what they say. So it's it's very um, it's very indicative of just the transparent nature that we have in our society. There are people that post things really think that they're anonymous. It, it's odd, but uh, nothing you write on the Internet is going to be anonymous. Yes, you know, when I first started using Twitter, um, I thought that those that what I wrote was just going out to my Twitter followers (laughs) (laughs) until I happened to, I was trying to uh, Google something one day and uh, something that I had commented on, not not necessarily in regard to Twitter, and I saw all these Twitter. (laughs) Yeah, it's amazing how they pop up. (laughs) And then they get retweeted and things like that. Um, So it it does happen. And, and, you know, I don't think it will really have much of an effect. I mean, if it was said by the attorney, um, it probably would have more of an effect. But I think everybody recognizes it was just a poor choice of words. Yeah, I, I, I don't. I think it, it could cut both ways, you know. Um, what about the fact that um, the judge also said that there wasn't going to be a walkthrough of the site allowed? What do you think about that? A jury view is what it's called in the law, where you take the jury out to the scene. Probably. Um, rarely granted. It's an unusual thing in the law. First of all, especially when you have a sequestered jury, it requires a lot of resources. And then second, I think it was probably um, a good call based on the fact that we have what's called a scene walkthrough where the detectives took George Zimmerman, put him in the car, video and audio taped him walking them through what happened that night. So the jury has the ability to see through his eyes and mm-hmm. see also through the detectives and where they were panning the camera to see exactly what the scene looked like. So it probably was unnecessary, but that video is very, very powerful if your listeners haven't, haven't seen it yet. Yes, in what way? It's powerful because self-defense always has to do with the beliefs of the person who used force. That is just the bottom line of a self-defense claim. So the jury gets a chance to see a couple of things about what George Zimmerman was thinking. But the other thing they get to see is that he was cooperating. Mm -hmm. This goes back to a theme, and one of the homicide detectives talked about this yesterday, that he was cooperating. He seemed believable. I've seen a couple of his statements. I saw his interview on the Hannity show. He's telling a consistent story. The, The biggest inconsistency people are calling to, to me, is not one at all. They're saying that there's no... uh, evidence that uh, Trayvon Martin was pushing his head down to the pavement. Well, if a person's head is laying on the pavement and they're being punched in the face, Mm -hmm. that would give the impression, especially as George Zimmerman has described, that these blows were hitting his head against the concrete and he felt like he was going to go unconscious. And the physical evidence with the injuries to the back of his head really bear that out. Right, absolutely. 
Well, we do need to take another break. My guest is Lance LaRusso, or his book is called When Cops Kill. We're talking about the George Zimmerman case, all the pros and cons, and likelihood of his being found guilty or not. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, so stay tuned. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking about George Zimmerman, guilty or not, with my guest, Lance LaRusso, who is not only a leading attorney and an author, but also a former police officer and also someone who has walk, worked with uh, neighborhood watches. And I'm going to ask you about what, one of the things that I found interesting was that um, George Zimmerman, at the time, he was actually going to school. Um, he had wanted to be here. Let's see. He was an ins- At the time of this uh, incident, he was an insurance underwriter, and he was in his final semester at Seminole State College for an associate degree in criminal justice. And his goal was to become a judge like his father. And, um, and so he was, you know, working on, on Neighborhood Watch. And, I mean, he had, he had this whole career plan um, plotted out for himself. And obviously what happened was not in his plans. But um, so, and it, so it kind of makes me think, so it's really, of course, an unfortunate situation. And it, it you know, it shows that this wasn't some uh, gun-toting um, outlaw, you know, he he had um, he had all these aspirations, and which kind of makes me think also. And although it isn't necessarily in the same order, but um, I'm interested in how you uh, went from being a police, well, working in neighborhood watch, to being a police officer, to be deciding to become an attorney. Well, actually, my work with Neighborhood Watch was being the police liaison for Neighborhood Watch, so uh-huh. it was it was pretty interesting. I I, I have always just loved the law. Uh, I've always been fascinated by it. I was a police trainer. I taught law enforcement firearms. I still teach at the police academy a lot, but I was always fascinated with the other aspects of it. Um, the law being. Uh, all-encompassing, and there's so much more aspects to that in law school that you learn other than the small, narrow window of criminal procedure and criminal law that mm-hmm. you get. Matter of fact, I taught the uh, a lot of the 
citizen police academies such as what um, George Zimmerman went through, and it's designed to give the public a taste of uh, how that works. Uh-huh. So, but what, well, once you were a police officer, what, you know, what made you change careers to become an attorney? Well, I loved being a cop. Uh, it was quite enjoyable, and I just wanted to continue my education. And then once I started my practice, I started representing a lot of law enforcement officers. Uh, I represent a lot of law enforcement officers who are involved in use of deadly force situations, and I represent officers when they're involved in uh, injuries on duty or off duty. It seems like any time there's a DUI driver and there's an officer anywhere within 10 miles of them, that's who they're going to hit. Um, so they are exposed to a lot of those risks, and I represent a lot of them. But the law surrounding use of deadly force really is the same, whether you're talking about law enforcement officers or private citizens. So that's why this whole case has mm. been very instructive for all of us, including a lot of my clients. Well, now, one of the things, I mean, I was, as I was starting to tell you off the air, um, in, I think in California and really in the country in general, there has been a... Um, an epidemic of um, death by cop, or, or, well, I mean, they call it suicide by cop, but it, you know, it's a question of whether it's suicide by cop or cops, just, cops killing. Um, and there just seems to be a rash of this, more and more cops leading, needing less and less provocation to, to pull out their guns and just explode with a, ha- a, a bunch of bullets. And, and what I don't understand is why in cop school, <laughs> in the police academy, um, isn't there more training in how to shoot without killing the person? I mean, like if you shot at their arm or you shot at their leg, if you you know, shot at something that would make them um, incapable of, of hurting you, that just seems like the more sane thing to do. Well, it's an interesting point. We talk about that a lot in when cops kill. Um, law enforcement in the United States is highly trained. Um, They go through a great deal of training, not just on the laws surrounding the use of force, but they go through a lot of scenario training. They go through video simulations on the use of deadly force. And law enforcement officers are trained to stop the threat. You have to understand that when officers are using deadly force, when they decide to shoot someone, they're making a decision that it is important and imperative to stop the threat as quickly as possible. Shooting someone in the arm, shooting someone in the leg, shooting a knife out of someone's hand is really, really great in a movie. It doesn't work in reality. It's very, very difficult to maintain accurate fire and to shoot someone um, other than aiming at the largest target available. So that's where the officers are shooting to stop the threat, and unfortunately the largest target available is generally a person's chest. If you shoot someone in the chest, they stand a chance of a serious bodily injury or death. Okay, but if you shoot someone in the chest ten times, they stand a greater chance. Well, why? Why if they, you know, if they shoot them in the chest, why can't it just be once? It's that is an excellent question, and that's one of the chapters in the book. Mm-hmm. And when cops kill, and on my blog, Blue Line Lawyer, we talk a lot about why officers use the number of rounds they use. The only two important analyses when someone uses deadly force, whether it's an officer or whether it's a civilian, is why did they start shooting and why did they stop shooting. When officers are using deadly force, as long as the threat is present, then they are justified, whether that's one round or three rounds or five rounds. I can tell you when officers have shot, and I've actually responded out to the scene and talked to them, the situation is happening so quickly. They are so much on sensory overload 
that they really can't even tell you how many shots they fired. They're shooting until the threat stops. Interestingly, George Zimmerman fired one shot. He fired a shot, and he thought he missed. But he stopped shooting, and this is critical. It's a very difficult point for the prosecution. He stopped shooting because the attack stopped. He said that after the report of the firearm, Trayvon Martin stopped hitting him, and he stopped shooting. And just like in every officer-involved shooting, that's a critical point. Were they justified to shoot, and did they stop shooting when the justification ended? The amount of rounds they fire in the middle really doesn't enter into the legal analysis. Well, well, I think it should, and, it's, and especially when there's more than one cop at the scene. I mean, that's when it really gets ridiculous, when all these cops are shooting at one person and, and many, many getting many rounds into them. Well, the perceptions really vary based on where someone is. I was involved in a shooting. Oh, my. For several, mm-hmm. I, mean, I was involved in representing someone on a shooting where there were four or five officers that were facing a threat. They all saw the threat. They all uh, were standing in various distances to the threat. Mm-hmm. And the officers fired. Several of them fired at once. But what was interesting was the witnesses said they only heard two or three shots. Mm -hmm. These officers had never trained together, but because of their training being standardized throughout the United States, they perceived the deadly threat to them at the same time. Mm-hmm. Well, I think there needs to be more training in this, though. You know, we teach, um, I'm totally against violent video games, but they, we use that to train soldiers, and maybe that should be used to train cops um, to be more accurate in terms of, of, of disarming rather than killing. What, you know, I was saying, uh, oh, my goodness, or whatever, um, because our time is up. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, of course, we could go on for a much longer time. I want to make sure people um, know your book name again. It's called When Cops Kill. Uh, I, I, it can be bought where books are sold and also on the Internet. It can be and, purchased at Amazon.com or WhenCopsKill.com. Okay, great. And, uh, you know, this, this is a particularly interesting topic. I'm sure I'll have to have you back on when there's another cop killing, another uh, big case like this, you know, of, of, of cops killing a... Um, a victim. I enjoyed talking to you. We'd love to come back. Okay. Well, thank you very much. That was Lance LaRusso, and thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.